Welcome back to our podcast series, The Idea of Greece. Today, we bring you our sixth episode in this seven-part podcast, produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's History Committee. We're a small group with big passion to make history something to get excited about. I'm your host, Georgia Balogianis, one of the founding members of the History Committee. This podcast series is also under the auspices of the Greece 2021 Committee, which is spearheading the global commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution. Special thanks go out to our podcast sponsor, Agape Greek Radio. Today's episode is called Phil Hellenes and the Revolution. And to help tell the story, we're joined today by Professor Sakis Gekas. Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University in Toronto, and Christopher Grafos, Research Associate at York University, historian in the history of Greeks in North America, and the co-founder of the Greek-Canadian History Project. Hello, gentlemen, and welcome. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Georgia. Great to have you both here today. And this is a first for our podcast series to have two in-house historians share their knowledge with our listeners. You're both members of the History Committee, but it's not the first time you two are meeting. Tell us a little bit about how you're acquainted. Well, I'll jump in on that one. Sakis was actually my co-supervisor when I was a PhD student in the History Department at York University. And while I was first starting my research on Greeks in Canada, I came across a problem in that I was consistently meeting people who said to me, Chris, I wish that you had come to meet me earlier. I wish that we had had this conversation earlier because I had all of these documents related to my experience as a Greek immigrant here in Canada and no one had any interest in them. And so I got rid of them. Uh, On the flip side of that, I met a lot of people who had a lot of very valuable materials sitting in their basement. It was in danger of being purged. It was not being properly preserved. And I started a conversation with Sakis about this, and that got a much longer process going, which eventually culminated in the Greek-Canadian History Project. And what the Greek-Canadian History Project does, uh, there are actually two things. The first thing is that it seeks to identify preserve and make accessible documents related to the Greek immigrant experience in Canada. And these items are housed at the Claire Thomas Archives and Special Collections at York University. And the second thing that it does is it engages in public history. As historians, what we don't like to see is that things get put into an archive and then no one consults them. We love history going and seeing documents that no one has seen. It's kind of like the Super Bowl to us. But, uh, you know, we want to bring this knowledge to people. It is absolutely to Chris's credit and contribution that uh, we really have a Greek-Canadian history project, an archive that is developing uh, into one of the main resources for the history of Greeks in Canada. That's wonderful because Greeks have played quite a bit uh, of a role in establishing a very strong community here in Toronto, as you mentioned. So that's wonderful. Thank you for preserving that. In episode five, we introduced our listeners to the incredibly brave women who played a crucial role in securing Greece's freedom from the Ottomans, women who participated in many ways during the war. And so did Phil Hellenes. Um, and what an interesting word that is, uh, Saki. So we'll start with you. Who is a Phil Hellene and what does this word actually mean? 
Philhellenes are lovers of all things Greek, of Greek culture, of Greek art, architecture, and it starts as an intellectual movement uh, around the mid 18th century, so the 15, 1750s, 1760s, when more and more Europeans, mostly British and French, and some Italians, they start traveling to parts of the Ottoman Empire in Greece, Albania, uh, further east in Asia Minor, and they start discovering ancient Greek sites. So they develop a fascination for classics, for ancient Greek history, and this is something that uh, creates uh, quite a stir and in uh, parts of Western Europe and also uh, eventually in North America. And it is uh, the values and principles and ideals of ancient Greece that uh, inspire people to uh, think beyond the intellectual movement and uh, the sentiment that Philhellenism is initially to a political project, to a political belief that uh, someday and somehow another Greece might still be free. Chris, um, could you tell us what was the Greek diaspora like in the 1820s? It's important to note that the diaspora in the 1820s is different than the diaspora today. And it was prior to the mass migration of Greeks to the U.S., which primarily happened starting in the 1880s, in uh, 1890s, and then into the early 1900s. So we tend to associate the word diaspora, especially in 2021, with huge numbers of Greeks who are unskilled or semi-skilled, leaving Greece, going to somewhere else in order to work, send money back home in order to improve their lot, um, and then getting caught up in the life of work and eventually staying and forming community there. Well, uh, it was in the 1880s and in the 1890s where mass migration, uh, because of technological advancements and of labor needs, that's when Greeks started moving to the U.S. in particular en masse. So in the 1820s, again, we hadn't seen that yet. There were a couple Greek settlements prior to the uh, mass migration, starting in the 1880s and 1890s. One in Florida, which happened in the late 1700s. It was a dismal failure. And the first Greek Orthodox Church, which I think is important to note, was actually in New Orleans in 1864. So in relation to the revolution, we did not have a large Greek diaspora like we do today. Sakis, why would the outside world be interested in the plight of the Greeks in 1821? Well, just to follow up from what uh, Chris has said, uh, we don't have a large Greek diaspora, 20th century style. We do have a few merchant communities and intellectual communities in many parts of Europe and uh, sort of Italian states, cities, and in Central and Western Europe. So there is some knowledge about where uh, Greeks come from, because, of course, they come from the Ottoman Empire or the Ionian Islands. So then, in fact, there are many Greek diasporas in, in, at the time. So there are people from the island of Chios or from the Ionian Islands or from Epirus and Western Macedonia. So they form clusters of you know, Greek communities that make uh, the case of Greeks or the origins, uh, the geographical origins and cultural to a certain extent, origins of Greeks well known. So the, the great advantage that Greeks have when they decide to take up arms against the Ottoman Empire is that they are fairly well known to Europeans, both in terms of the ancient you know, Greek, uh, the classical civilization, let's say, that Europeans study intensively as uh, lovers of classics and history, but also because of the presence of merchants, intellectuals in, from Russia to France. And uh, this is actually what creates uh, interest. 
Now, the other reason why Europeans would be interested in what happens in Greece, because as we've said before in this series, it's a religious war. So religion motivates uh, many people, including those who come from North America, to fight and associate with the plight uh, of Greece. Others, of course, and this is why Philhellenism is a romantic uh, movement as well, they are lovers of liberty. So they want to see an independent Greece free from Ottoman Muslim for many, of course, uh, as the associated tyranny, and to see a, an ideal of ancient Greece recreated. To speak more about the American Philhellenes, we welcome to the podcast Maureen Santelli, Associate Professor of History at Northern Virginia Community College and the author of The Greek Fire, American-Ottoman Relations and Democratic Fervor in the Age of Revolutions. Welcome, Maureen. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right to it. Why would Americans care about what's happening in Greece at that time? So we see the origins of American interest in Greek independence long predating the Greek revolution itself. We see origins of this going back to the late 18th century. Uh, Probably one of the best sources for this is uh, Thomas Jefferson, who spent time in France, encountered uh, French Philhellenes in his time there. And he wrote to many friends in the United States at that time, expressing this interest in a free Greek state. His sense about a free Greek state, of course, was also juxtaposed with the fact that the Greeks were living under Ottoman rule. There was this feeling in the United States that the Ottoman Empire was the antithesis to the United States in that it's tyrannical, despotic, the exact opposite of a republic or a democracy. And it was all the more horrifying to Jefferson and other early Americans that the descendants of the ancient Greeks, the descendants of Pericles, uh, those who had helped to create the origins of democracy were now living under the rule of the Ottomans. So there already was this extant feeling that the Greeks should be free. But we also uh, have this combination of the Americans feeling like they have fought through their American revolution, that they were uniquely poised to make a revolution a successful one in Greece because of their Um, experience with their own revolution. And so there are other um, writings at the time, especially uh, captive tales of Americans being taken captive by Barbary pirates, for example, which all the more promoted this idea that the Ottomans were the antithesis of the United States. So with that feeling in mind, combined with the fact that Americans had sort of divorced themselves from their British identity in a lot of ways and had adopted ancient Greece and Rome as their intellectual um, antecedents. So we have the intellectualism behind that, but then also the fact that the Greeks are Christian is a major component there as well. So the Americans believed that they had this connection to ancient Greece um, intellectually and then the modern Greeks with the fact that they are Christian. Were there other parts of the Greek Revolution that resonated with what was going on in America during the 19th century? So at the beginning of the revolution, Americans were enthusiastic about Greek independence because, again, the Americans have fought in their own revolution. There's sort of this romantic feeling about supporting the Greeks. So we see a lot of Uh, poetry being written in the early stages of the war, 1821, 1822. 
But that changes by the close of 1823 when the United States government comes out and officially makes it known we will not be recognizing Greek independence. This is made clear in President Monroe's State of the Union address given in December of 1823. This is the where he states the Monroe Doctrine. That speech is what it's known for. But the speech actually also discusses the Greek Revolution and says we won't be interjecting ourselves into that conflict. And almost immediately, within days, Americans nationwide were sort of taken aback. Uh, they had believed that the United States would support openly the Greek Revolution. And when that wasn't going to happen, we see Daniel Webster of Massachusetts coming into Congress saying, we need to talk about this. Uh, we can't possibly not support the Greeks. So we see mobilization in Congress. There is also an abundance of newspaper articles that are printed in the month of December, 1823, calling for aid to be sent to Greece. The enthusiasm for the Greek revolution is sustained through Americans' genuine interest in what was happening in Greece. The news from merchants, but also agents that were being supported by Greek Philhellenic societies uh, in Philadelphia, New York especially, but also Boston. They were being financially supported. And we see by about 1826, yet another transition in how Americans are going to support the Greek Revolution. So it transitions from we need to send military aid to now they realize we can actually get women more involved if this is about supporting Greek civilians. So again, by 1826, we see a lot of fundraising for clothing, food, uh, those sorts of supplies. And that enthusiasm continued to be sustained through news of like the, the loss of Missolonghi, for example, the death of Lord Byron. And, uh, and then eventually these uh, Greek Philhellenic groups in the U.S., are interested in helping to lay the foundation for a free Greek state, especially with the establishment of schools in Greece. Why wouldn't the American government support the revolution? So that is a very tangled web and was a fascinating one to research, in fact. So President Monroe desperately wanted to support the Greeks. There are letters between him and John Quincy Adams, his Secretary of State. He definitely entertained the thought. And, and frankly, perhaps the speech openly saying, okay, we're not going to support Greece is prolonged until December of 1823 because the, the war has been going on for two years at that point. I think it was probably prolonged because Monroe really wanted to get his... Uh, his advisors on board, but John Quincy Adams uh, had other ideas in mind. The United States, after the War of 1812, viewed that they had secured once and for all independence from Britain. There is this huge wave of nationalism in a lot of ways, this feeling the United States needs to come into its own, really enter into the international stage. And one place where the United States absolutely did not have a trade agreement was in the Mediterranean and with the Ottomans. Most of the other major European powers, of course, already had secured those agreements. So the United States is hoping to be competitive on the international stage in terms of trade, 
but they also they they so want to support the Greeks because it it means another republic in the world. They have these intellectual connections with the Greeks. So um, again, it, it's it's a very tense decision. So Maureen, did the revolution resonate with any other segments of American society? Yes. So the the abolitionist movement in the 1820s is going to influence other radical groups, especially women's rights. One, probably the most famous that's inspired by the Greek revolution and uh, its consequences is Lucy Stone, who much later uh, in the 1840s is very much a part of the abolitionist movement. And in 1847, a famous statue called the Greek Slave which was created by the American artist Hiram Powers, was making a national tour. It began in New York and then made its way to Boston where Lucy Stone was. And according to her, she stated that when she saw this statue in public, that obviously the memory of the Greek revolution, America's support for it came to mind. But it was so horrifying to see this image of a young Greek girl about to be sold on a Turkish auction block that she was struck by the similar situation that women were in throughout the world, but also within the United States in their reduced status. And according to her, it was at that moment that she decided to also devote her time to women's rights issues. Maureen, could I ask you about of uh, news and its perception in the United States with slavery? Interestingly enough, in the beginning years of the Greek Revolution, that really doesn't seem to pose an intellectual problem for Americans. I did not see any evidence of it anyway. For Southerners, this is an entirely different situation than slavery in the United States because the Greeks were perceived as white. And... um, in fact, uh, there is uh, extensive writing about the, the differences of the races, so-called. Um, Greeks were thought of in association with classical statuary. In fact, uh, I, I talk about in my book where um, Greeks are uh, equated to perfection with the Apollo Belvedere, for example. And so... I don't think anyone writes about it in the beginning of the revolution because it just really didn't pose a a moral conflict. Where that changes is by 1826, where again, efforts to support Greece have turned more towards the humanitarian, um, where they're sending aid there. Again, we still have the rhetoric about, we must free the Greeks from slavery from the Turks, but uh, there is a, a famous work by David Walker, who was uh, an African-American abolitionist who explicitly wrote in his pamphlet um, to uh, people of color in the United States that he just cannot understand how people in the US, including abolitionists, can um, stand by and say, we are abhorred by by slavery in Greece, the enslavement of the Greeks at the hands of the Turks, And yet, how come we still allow slavery within our own borders? So slowly but surely, we start to see Philhellenic rhetoric actually being adopted by the 
abolitionist movement of the late 1820s. And um, the argument is, how can you possibly want Greece to be free immediately when we aren't freeing African slaves immediately? So the United States were a world away from the Ottoman Empire and communications and travel were far from what they are today. So how did the outside world find about what was, find out what, about what was happening in the Revolutionary War? So at first, it is largely through news that's, that travels through merchant ships that changes by 1824 as we have these American agents going to Greece. Again, for example, uh, George Jarvis, Samuel Gridley Howe, Jonathan Peckham Miller, they uh, serve in the Greek army. They uh, write home. Uh, that's sort of part of their job as agents to inform the American public of what is happening. Their letters were immediately printed in uh, local new newspapers, which then are picked up by um, newspapers. It's almost like a rippling effect when you look for these articles. It takes, you know, however many days news could travel via horse and carriage, right? But uh, their letters were printed uh, throughout the country, and uh, and and people really were. Uh, sustained by that information. And you can see in the newspapers and pamphlets, uh, fundraising taking place in response to their calls for aid. We have a copy of the newspaper, The Wilmingtonian from Wilmington, Delaware, dated February 5th, 1824. It reports on a meeting of the Committee of the Greek Fund and its effort to raise money to send to the Greeks. It also included the address of an R. Williston, who was chair of the committee. To the citizens of Wilmington and its vicinity, fellow citizens, the subject of this address is one which carries with it a forcible appeal to the heart of every American. It is in favor of a people who after ages of slavery in its most odious form are now making a noble and we trust successful effort for freedom. Greece, that land so interesting and so dear to every friend of letters and of freedom the land of Leonidas, of Aristides, and of Phocion, the cradle of those principles of civil liberty, under whose benign influence these states have reached their present degree of happiness and prosperity. This once favored land has been doomed to witness her glories obscured, her liberties prostrated, and her holy temples polluted by the hand of a barbarous and infidel oppressor. Nearly four centuries have elapsed since the cities and plains of Greece have been subject to the iron sway of the Turk and the descendants of the heroes of Thermopylae and Marathon have been treated as strangers and outcasts in their native land. Professing the same faith with ourselves, the persecutions of a false religion have added weight to the burden of their chains. That was George Scandalis reading the address of the Committee of the Greek Fund in the Wilmingtonian. Sakis, I wanted to follow up with you. How did the Greeks react to the outside world coming to their aid? I think many Greeks were thrilled. They were amazed that Europeans and some North Americans uh, came to their aid, to their assistance to help them in their cause to liberate themselves from uh, the Ottoman Empire. But others were, were probably puzzled because Europeans especially bring, as we've discussed in a different episode before, a different way of fighting. 
They come with their own ideas that some do not align with uh, what Greeks have in mind for the state that will result from uh, the revolution. And uh, some have their own individual motives, uh, as some of the Philhellenes. Many are military men, most of them actually, and uh, they bring their own ideas, whether they want, like General Favier, to continue the glory of Napoleon Bonaparte, but fought in elsewhere. Some bring their own um, Christian missionary ideas to proselytize uh, Greeks and uh, save them from orthodoxy to Protestantism. Some, uh, they bring their own um, political ideas about what kind of state this will be. So they think that this should be a Republican state, for instance, like a Stanhope. And others, they bring their uh, military capacity and uh, knowledge for which they are admired by the Greeks. So it depends really which Greeks we're talking about. So let's say the common fighters were thrilled as well as puzzled. Mavrokordatos and politicians were very much looking forward to that. And then there are others who are looking for uh, a cause, like many you know, from Germany, France, Italian states, and some very important ones like the Swiss banker Einard, who brings you know, his own connections and networks, financial networks, which then uh, leads to an issue that is sort of on the verge of Philhellenism, the raising of the first loans of the revolution, uh, which obviously has a, a profit involved, and therefore it is not exactly a Philhellenic sort of act. Uh, now, this is uh, important because a lot of people realize that down the road, you know, beyond the romanticism and support that Greeks need, they basically need money. And uh, this is, you know, when realism and pragmatism kicks in. And that is most, com- most evident in uh, the case of uh, Byron, who is revered by those who, who met him in 1823-24 when he gets to Missolonghi and he actually uses many more, most of his own funds to the revolution. I want to ask about the ways in which the Philhellenes supported the revolution. So when war broke out in the Peloponnese, how did the outside world react? Well, the first thing that people hear about is that Christians, the Greeks, have taken up arms in the Ottoman Empire. As I said before, there are those who are looking for a cause to continue fighting against absolutist governments. So following the Napoleonic Wars, many are uh, military professional military men. And I think that that's one of the ways in which we should distinguish that this Philhellenic, not necessarily movement, but rather waves, it comes and, and goes. I think it comes as a first wave of people who go to fight in Greece. And there are you know, a few hundreds of them, actually. Most of them, at least a hundred, were killed very early on in uh, the Battle of Peta in 1822 in southern Epirus, uh, near Missolonghi. So there are those who go to fight. Then there are those who survive and continue to fight and receive ranks in the, in the Greek uh, military. Uh, such as, you know, Hastings in the Navy, Jarvis, Howe, uh, who was also a medical doctor, and Miller, of course, that uh, Maureen Santelli mentioned earlier. So there are those who survived the first couple of years and they stayed on in, in Greece. And then there are others who never went to Greece, but continue the support from the foundation, the formation of Philhellenic committees. So the London Greek Committee is very famous, the, the Swiss ones, the North American ones, and they fundraise, they put pressure on their governments, and they contribute to a humanitarian effort after 1826, 1827, when things in Greece are very dire. So there's different groups of Philhellenes, but they all contributed in their own way, not so much in a sort of direct way of putting pressure to a single government, but I think simply by the fact that they were there, by the fact that they were writing about it to uh, European newspapers, 
uh, we shouldn't forget that this is the way they connect the outside world with what happens in the Greek Revolution. So this is what their overall contribution. They, they basically contribute to the internationalization of the Greek Revolution. I'd like to bring back Maureen Santelli of Northern Virginia Community College. Maureen, how did Americans try to help the war effort? In the early stages of the revolution, it is largely through sending funds. Initially, those funds were collected by the major uh, Hellenic groups in the northern cities in particular, and then sent to the London Philhellenic uh, Society. There was a feeling, though, that why are we sending our funds to the English? We should just be doing our own efforts. So uh, a few years later, we start to see Americans lobbying to send their own ships with supplies. And this especially happens as they transition to a more of a humanitarian effort. So ships with uh, food, clothing. In fact, uh, again, mobilizing through newspapers, you have uh, church groups, other benevolent societies, especially with women in them, they could appropriately interject themselves into this international effort because it was perceived as part of their domestic sphere, aiding women and children abroad was acceptable. But there's also some really great stories that are printed in the newspapers to show just how widespread the interest is. So for example, articles in 1824 that I came across, there was a fireman brigade in Washington City raised $50 sent to the Greeks. Also in 1824, a barber in Troy, New York donated his earnings from two days. Uh, he pledged that on these two specific days, anything I earn is going to be sent to the Greeks. So it's it's a very much an individual effort, but it's also very much, uh, we see that on the more organizational effort with church groups and uh, these female benevolent societies. So as little as like 10 bucks from, from a, a barber or something, all the way up to the New York Greek Committee sending, you know, more than $20,000 worth of food and supplies. So it was very far ranging. Fascinating that their plight resonated with so many different people in the U.S. Maureen, thank you for joining us today. Your insights definitely help us get a better understanding of the Philhellenes. We appreciate your time. The most famous poet involved in the Greek Revolution is Lord Byron, perhaps the most famous of the Philhellenes. Saki, tell us more about him and his background. Well, George Gordon Byron, also known uh, simply as Lord Byron, he was uh, the most famous representative of British Romanticism in the early 19th century. At the age of 21, he became a, a lord. He was an English peer and a politician. But the year after, he uh, went to his Eastern Mediterranean trip. That went, He went to North Italy. He went to Greece and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, all the way to Constantinople. And this is where he found his uh, inspiration in this is the period that he wrote his best poems. He's also known because he is from very early on, uh, the man who decided to write a poem against the looting of uh, the Parthenon marbles by Lord Elgin. So he is the first one who castigated uh, the removal of the Parthenon marbles. And uh, then in his sort of more political and uh, also romantic uh, phase. You mentioned that he was enamored by uh, this region of the world, but what inspired him to get involved in the war effort? 
I think the fact that he traveled to Greece is where he got his inspiration from. That's what he said, uh, that he never felt so inspired and so motivated before or after uh, his first trip to Greece. So what did he do when the war broke out? When the war broke out, actually Byron was considering in joining the liberals in Spain. Uh, when their revolution was crushed, he uh, joins the Philhellenic Committee, the Greek Committee in London. And he goes to uh, Greece, first to the island of Kefalonia, which is under British rule at the time and has a very Philhellenic uh, resident, governor, uh, Charles James Napier. And he stays there for a few months as he prepares to join fighters uh, in uh, Missolonghi, in the mainland, in continental Greece. So from what he writes and from people who met him there and wrote about it, he is a changed man. He is much more pragmatic. He goes there as a representative of the London Greek Committee, which is raising a loan in London, uh, in the London financial markets. And he's much more sober and disillusioned. So he talks about things like, well, you have to help Greece in spite of Greeks, because he is appalled by the infighting that has already started. He has to choose which side to support. Uh, he actually chooses uh, Mavrogordatos and his, you know, his political leanings towards Britain. And that's what he does when he uh, goes to, to Greece in uh, January 1824 in Missolonghi. And then he died. What impact did his death have on future Philhellene involvement? In the oh, it was enormous. I mean, the fact that he died in Greece, he fell ill, actually. His, you know, his health was not well, was quite damaged probably by the time he went to Missolonghi. And this is a squalid, you know, full of humidity town, especially in the winter and especially back then. Uh, it's uh, situated on a lagoon. So uh, the fact that he fell ill and died, unfortunately, in 1824, created a stir all over Europe and beyond. It's actually the April 19th date is the date that the Greek state, as recently as 2008, designated as the uh, International Day of Philhellenes. And uh, of course, his statues are in many parts of Greece. So there, there, is a, there is a legacy, not only during the revolution, that you know, he inspired many people to even go and fight or contribute uh, with funds to the Greek cause, uh, but uh, in the 20th century, because Byron helped refugees, he helped the Suliotes, who were, you know, a fighting group, but they were essentially refugees after forced to leave their uh, Suli villages in Ipiros. His uh, legacy resonates also in a neighborhood, in a district, in a refugee district of Athens, Vironas, uh, which is named uh, after him only, of course, in the 20th century. These were refugees from Asia Minor. So his legacy, you know, as a, as a hero of the revolution, but also as the most important philaline is uh, very well recognized in Greece uh, today too. I want to turn our focus to those who actually took up arms. Describe the first wave of foreign military support. Who was involved? There were men who fought in the Napoleonic Wars in many cases, uh, those who fought with either side, whether the French or German uh, forces or the Austrians or the Italians, for that matter. So you have people who are very experienced in war and made quite a career in the sense that they became officers of the Greek army and they contributed from uh, uh, the Italian Count Santa Rosa, who died in the uh, island of uh, Sfacteria. That is a, this is a small island that is guarding the Bay of Pilos of Navarino in the Western Peloponnese, to Hastings, who of course was a great uh, naval commander uh, from the British Navy, who also died in, uh, in 1828, to Colonel Jarvis, the American who fought very you know, gallantly, to Jonathan Peckham Miller, 
who was known as the, the American daredevil because he was fearless in battle. But the calamity of the Philippines was, was uh, made evident in the Battle of Peta in 1822 when they were fighting as a brigade. And because of the fighting style, you know, in formation, uh, in open field, uh, fighting a conventional style war uh, during an unconventional war. And they were most of them killed, you know, more than 100 uh, of them. Those that stayed became the main uh, group of the tactical of the regular army under uh, Colonel Favier, a fierce uh, Bonapartist, so someone who believed in continuing the fight of Napoleon Bonaparte, but in Greece. So many of them who went to fight, if they were not killed within the first year, they stayed on and uh, continued fighting until the end or joined the Greek military and some of them the Greek politics afterwards. And did outside fighters fight for their love of Greece or did they have other reasons? There, there, was people, there were people who were fighting uh, both for the love of Greece and they had their own reasons. Some of them were accused of seeking ranks and uh, fortunes and uh, titles uh, and glory in, in the fight for Greece. So there is some romanticism there as well as some individual motives. I think the, the most uh, interesting cases are of those who bring their own ideas uh, about how Greece, uh, Greeks should be fighting, uh, what kind of state will result after the war. And that doesn't always align with what Greeks believe. So there is a, there is a conversation there that sometimes falls on uh, deaf ears. But in many cases, many of those Greek Philhellenes, especially those that lived and uh, stayed on in Greece for several years, they learned Greek. And it uh, explains how they communicated and influenced in many ways the, the war. Jarvis, uh, Miller, uh, Howe, Hastings as well, uh, the British naval commander, they learned uh, modern Greek. And this is the sort of cultural interaction that goes on there, which I think is very important. Or when we talk about Lord Stan, uh, Colonel Stanhope in Missolonghi, who's the first one to convince Byron, in fact, that uh, Greeks need to have their newspaper. So he brings Mayer and uh, German Philhellin and the printing machine, the first printing machine in Missolonghi and one later on in Idra, comes because of the Philhellins and Stanhope's personal uh, belief that this, this is absolutely necessary. You need a newspaper that will be publishing news from Missolonghi and the revolution on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. What happened to the Philhellenic support after the revolution? To some extent, the wave uh, of Philhellenism subsides because once there is a Greek state, there is a realization that Greeks are to some extent responsible also for their own course, for their own uh, fortunes. The best expression of Philhellenism and its impact after the revolution is the appointment of King Otto, uh, the second son of King Ludwig uh, of Bavaria in 1831-32. And his father, King Ludwig, the Bavarian king, was a very um, strong supporter uh, of Philhellenic. It's the only Philhellenic state, in fact, that uh, recreates uh, ancient Greek uh, temples and the Parthenon in Munich. Uh, he's uh, one of the most, um, uh, of the strongest supporters of an independent uh, Greece, and he's convinced to send his son to become uh, the first king. I should say also that Greek politics uh, takes a turn after 1830s, that are involved in different ways with uh, European politics. So this temporary alliance of Britain, France, and Russia uh, against the Ottoman Empire uh, dissolves very quickly after Greece is independent. 
So Philalins, I think, continue. Some of them went back to their, you know, studying their classics as they did before. Uh, some continue to come to Greece. There's, there's a very uh, strong movement of people who visit Greece as a state. And some outlandish plans by Bavarians and other Germans to colonize Greece, you know, to send, to send Germans in Greece. But of course, once they realize that this is a very poor country, devastated by war, they quickly abandon these plans. It is telling that even the Bavarian soldiers who joined Otto, King Otto, after 1837-38, most of them went back. Uh, some of them stayed in Athens, uh, just out, out, outside Athens, city center. It's an, an area called Neo Heraklion. And that's where they originally settled and became farmers. But very few of the Philalines actually went to live uh, in Greece. And what a beautiful word that is, Philhellene. Philotonelena, the friend of the Greek. Thank you so much to both of you for sharing your expertise with us. And, you know, this wraps up another really interesting episode. And it just goes to show how interconnected people were around the world, even back then, and how critical international aid was to the success of the revolution. And it's something I didn't know about before speaking with both of you today. So, Chris and Sakis, thank you. A pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Georgia. It was a pleasure to participate. We've spent this episode discussing how the outside world came to the aid of the Greeks, but next week we'll be delving into the inner political workings and what comes next for the Greeks. We take a look at the legacy of the revolution in Greece and how the new nation was formed. Stay tuned for that. This podcast was produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes for helping make this happen. Our researchers, Anastasia Tsagrinos and Angelo Lascaris. Our historians, Sakis Gekas and Christopher Grafos. Our editor is Stampapulkis. Readings performed by George Scandalis. Original music composed by Dimitris Petsalakis. Special thanks to our guest, Maureen Santelli of Northern Virginia Community College. Our executive producer is Sandra Gionis. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsor, Agape Greek Radio, and the Greece 2021 Committee, and the inspiring stories of all who fought in the Greek Revolution and for their sacrifice. I'm Georgia Balogianis. The idea of Greece returns on March 25th, the actual 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution, and it will be our final installment in this podcast series. I hope you can join us. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and hhf.ca.